Go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1, we are beginning a new um, uh, sermon series this morning called Esther, God's Quiet Providence. And uh, the book of Esther can be found obviously in the Old Testament. And uh, if you don't know in the Old Testament where that's at, it's right before the book of Job, which we studied just a few, uh, few weeks back. Now as you're finding Esther, let me explain real quick what we're, what we're doing here. We are starting this new series. We'll be in Esther for, for several weeks. And then after that, we will be going back to seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. I know a couple of different folks have asked me sort of what our, what our preaching uh, design is here. And we do, do, have a, do have a purpose and a reason why we're doing these things. And, and I hope to explain that more here in the near future. But uh, right now, we're going to be in Esther for the next uh, several weeks. Now, how many of you guys in here uh, have a, a cell phone or a smartphone? Okay, almost everybody in here has a, has a cell phone or a, a smartphone. Now, how many of you can explain in detail how cell phones work? Not, not as many hands. How many of you guys in here, oh, Jason, thank you. We'll, we'll save that for later. How many of you guys in here have a microwave oven? Okay. How many of you can um, explain exactly how that microwave works? A few of you. How many of you in here um, uh, use the internet? How many of you can uh, fully understand and explain how the internet works? Jason's three for three over here. <laughs> the fact of the matter is there, there's, there's lots of things in our life that we use, technologies, different things, that we, we honestly have no idea how they work. We just use them. We're not aware of the, of the things that have to happen behind the scenes, underneath what we're doing in order to make what we're using work, to make it possible. And so I, I bring up that illustration this morning because in our day and age, we have hundreds of technologies that we use that we, we literally have no idea how they work. I mean, I'm not like Carrie. I have no idea what's happening when my car starts going do, 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 and I'm driving down the road, all right? I, I don't know how this thing works. I just know I take it to someone and fix it when it needs to be fixed. Well, so too um, in, in our lives, let me ask another question. Let me just put it this way. How many of you have seen situations and coincidences work together in your life for your good? Anybody? So how many of you can explain how that works? Jason, are you going to go for it? It's called providence. Providence is the governance of God by which he with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things in the universe. God's providential sovereign rule can and does sometimes include miraculous intervention, but most of God's providential work is invisible and carried out through the normal, ordinary actions of human beings in our normal, ordinary courses of life. Providence is, for the most part, unseen, unknown, inscrutable, meaning that it, it's mysterious, it's impossible for us to fully understand. This book, the book of Esther, is designed to show and teach God's providence. Just, there, just as there are hidden and unseen things and workings beneath the technologies that we use, things that we cannot fully explain yet are essential 
to the function of the different things that we, we do, so too, in an infinitely greater way, God is always at work in hidden and unseen ways, in inexplicable ways, working all things together for his glory and for the good of his covenant people. Now on the surface, now on its surface, Esther is an entertaining story of how a lovely Jewish girl named Esther becomes the queen of a foreign land and saves her people from destruction. In chapters, just a real quick synopsis, in chapters 1 and 2, Esther becomes the queen to Ahasuerus, it's kind of a weird name, but Ahasuerus of Persia. And after the previous queen had been removed because she wasn't submitting to his demeaning commands, So Esther was personally chosen by this king after a a beauty contest of sorts. And then in chapters 3 through 4, Mordecai, Esther's um, guardian, for some reason refuses to bow down and pay homage to a, a man named Haman, a high official of the king. Haman becomes infuriated and manipulates the king into signing an edict that would destroy all the Jews from the kingdom. And Mordecai discovers the the plot and he reports it to, to Esther who then must transform from from this mild, timid, passive victim that she really is into a bold, courageous hero. In chapters 5 through 10, we have an amazing story with twists and turns whereby Esther outwits Haman and and takes her petition to the king and, and pleads for the protection of her people from Haman's wicked arrangement. And so Esther persuades the king to, to pass a, a new edict that would not only serve to counteract Haman's evil one, but also allows God's people to carry out vengeance against God's enemies. And so the main character of the story of the book of Esther is Esther, right? Wrong. Amazingly, the, this is a story where the main character is never mentioned. The book of Esther isn't really about Esther or Mordecai, or even the Jews. It's about God, God's providence. And as I said, this book is all about God's providence. It's about his hidden hand, his quiet providence. Yet, God himself, his name, is not mentioned one time in this entire book. Matter of fact, that's one of the biggest difficulties people have with the book of Esther, The book makes no mention of God's name. Likewise, it makes no mention of the law or of the temple. It records no type of worship. There is no praise offered to God at the end of the story. There's no acknowledgement of his work. There's not even prayers being offered up in the book. Although there is fasting, and we probably can assume that the prayers are being offered as well. But prayer itself is not mentioned or demonstrated by any of the characters. Beyond that, this book introduces us to a new festival, the Feast of Purim, a new festival which is never even prescribed in the law of Moses. There are other difficulties as well with this book. This is not a book of exemplary characters. The human heroes of the story, Esther and Mordecai, though exhibiting exhibiting some noble traits such as courage, fail to show the high moral ethic of the likes of other exilic heroes like Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego. Matter of fact, some of their actions leave us a bit uneasy and confounded. Many commentators have found the the moral compromise and the God-ignoring nature of the book difficulties that just make it too much to handle. John Calvin, he, he didn't even include this book in any of his biblical commentaries. And Martin Luther, in, in Lutheresque 
fashion, very boldly said, I am so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. I hope none of you talk about the Bible that way, but Luther certainly thought he could speak about the book of Esther that way. In other words, Luther thought it wasn't an inspired book and felt it shouldn't be in the canon. And so throughout history, there have been many people who have had trouble with this book. Now, while I can understand their reaction, I'm afraid that Luther and the others have failed to see the brilliance of the book of Esther. It's actually the silence about God where the whispers of God are heard so loudly. God inspired and ordained this book to show us himself by not mentioning himself. The hidden hand of God is clearly perceived in this book by those with eyes to see, and subsequently it should stir us up. And it has for me, as I've studied Esther uh, this week and, and, and dug deeper into it, it should stir us up to even greater levels of awe and worship of our God, a greater understanding of his providence. And so with that, we begin with chapter 1 today, where the author sets the stage for us. I want you to please stand, if you would, as we read all of chapter 1. Today we're just going to stay in chapter 1. This is the first section as we dive into this masterful story whereby we see God's quiet providence play out. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of the reading of, of God's Word. So we, unlike Luther, believe this is the inspired, inerrant Word of God that we are about to read here. Esther 1, beginning in verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus... The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods, and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bitztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, 
the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all those, all who were versed in law and judgment. The man, <clears throat> the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mem- Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only, has, not only the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed all his kingdom throughout all his kingdom for it is vast all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike this advice pleased the king and the princes and the king did as memucan proposed he sent letters to all the royal provinces to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people let's pray Father, I pray that you'd help us to see in this first very interesting beginning to this amazing book, your providential hand at work. Help us this morning to submit to your providential hand. Lord, help us not to be like the materialist in this world who think that everything's just a cosmic accident. And though we believe in God, Lord, there's so many of us that don't actually see your providence at work. And too many Christians talk about things like luck and chance. So help us, Lord, to see what your word has to say about how you run the universe. Give us ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, having been a video producer... Uh, who produced uh, some children's television shows and also some some commercials. I, I always knew that the opening of a show or even the first few seconds of a commercial were vital. You had to get the attention of the viewer. The, the opening scene had to grab you. And so too with a good book. And, that, and Esther is a magnificent piece of literature. From the beginning, we're hooked You just can't put this book down. Now, this literary masterpiece has it all. Power-hungry leader, driven by greed and sensuality, conniving villains, unsuspecting heroes. It has intrigue, it has tension, it has uh, twists and turns, it has violence, it has romance. It has irony and humor. It has a happy yet tragic ending. 
And so as we jump into the first scenes of Esther this morning, the first whispers of God's providence can be seen. And the first thing I want us to see here is that God's providence, see if I can get this working, God's providence supersedes man's power. God's providence supersedes man's power. Verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus. Now Ahasuerus is the king also known as King Xerxes. Ahasuerus is probably a title, kind of like Pharaoh is a title for Egyptian kings. King Xerxes reigned from 486 to 464 B.C., succeeding his father Darius and his grandfather Cyrus. So we read in verse 1 that that this was the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now you can can look in your Bible and probably see a map of of what the Persian, the Medo-Persian kingdom consisted of. But this is a, a vast swatch of land. In other words, this was the most powerful kingdom in the world with 127 provinces. Now that number, 127 provinces, may be a symbolic number that simply represent the, the fullness and, per, and, and perfection of the kingdom because um, we read in other secular histories that there weren't quite that many provinces. But what the, what's being communicated is the perfection and the sheer size of this massive kingdom that King Ahasuerus had. Now, he himself, King Ahasuerus, had not done much of the military work to build this kingdom. It had all been done by Cyrus and by Darius before him. We read in verse 2 that in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Now, what is Susa? Susa is one of the four capitals of the Medo-Persian kingdom. And this was the capital that was used during the winter time, during the winter months. Now, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us a few things about Xerxes. We learn that he was a, a handsome man. He was a cunning warrior, but that's about the full extent of anything positive that Herodotus had to say about King Xerxes. We also read that by, in Herodotus that he was a jealous lover. He was a ruthlessly ambitious ruler. There's a story that one time he ordered a bridge to be built. It took months and months to build this bridge over a canyon. And as the bridge was nearing its completion, there came a storm. And when the storm rolled through, it caused damage to the bridge and actually ruined the bridge. And King Ahasuerus was so angry that, first of all, he he took all the construction workers and gave them 300 lashes, thereby killing most of them. And then he took the engineers of the bridge and decapitated them. That's the kind of man this Xerxes, this Ahasuerus was. He was a tyrannical despot. We're also told by Herodotus, a secular uh, historian, that, that Ahasuerus lacked the moral quality of his father and grandfather. He arrogantly loved to parade his power, which is what we see in the next few verses, right? Verse 3, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia, Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. He showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, now more than likely, this wasn't just a consistent, unending party for, for half a year. Instead, it was probably a, a, a state of, of, uh, of the kingdom being in a state of celebration whereby people rotated in and out of various different parties that went on throughout that, those months. It wasn't uncommon for Persian leaders uh, to throw lavish parties 
um, with their military leadership and their governmental officials right before they, they led a military campaign. So, so many scholars think that this took place just prior to Xerxes' failed and foolish attack on the Greeks. Regardless, the festivities end with a bang. So he, he has this thing going on for 180 days. And then in verse 5, when the days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So Ahasuerus, he likes to parade his power. And he reflects what history tells us about him. An archaeologist found this inscription. I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of countries containing many kinds of men, king in this great earth far and wide, son of King Darius, an Archimenean, a Persian, son of a Persian, an Aryan of Aryan stock. He was very proud of himself. He thought much of himself. He called himself the king of kings. And this inscription was found in what was originally part of the royal palace. And we see the description of the royal palace next in verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Xerxes, we know, loved luxury. Matter of fact, Herodotus tells us that when Xerxes went to battle, and they set up his tent while he was out on the battlefield. They put solid gold couches in his tent. This is the kind of man he was. So it should be no surprise with such unimaginable extravagance, there was also unrestrained excess. So in verse 7 we read, Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. There is no compulsion. Now, what does this mean? It simply refers to the fact that at Persian feasts, the the guests were compelled to drink only when the king said to drink and to stop drinking whenever the king said to stop drinking. And what he's saying here is you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to feel compelled anymore. There are no restraints. Do whatever you want. Have at it. It's an open bar. Now, for some reason, we read in verse 9 that Queen Vashti was also giving a feast to the women in the palace of King Ahasuerus. And this is this may be a hint, an early hint of maybe some some discord there in their relationship because we have no historical evidence that these types of of, of Persian parties were segregated in any sort of way. But but Vashti apparently is is not there and she is holding her own party in a different part of the palace. And then we read in verse ten what comes up next. On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine he commands Mechumen, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Hashuerus, to bring the queen, Queen Vashti, before him, before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now there are some commentators who ridiculously claim that this passage is an example of wives not submitting as they should to their husbands. But Scripture never calls for a wife to submit to an ungodly command from an ungodly man for the purpose of an ungodly act. And an ungodly act is exactly what Ahasuerus was calling for. He wants to parade his wife. Some believe he was telling her to come with only her crown on. He wants to parade his wife 
along with his golden couches, his marble pillars, his beautiful mosaics, along with all those things, he wants to, to use her as a trophy to testify to his greatness and his power. He's a pig. He's a drunken, heartless, self-absorbed, chauvinist pig. And she rightly refuses to submit to his demeaning demand. Anyone in here that thinks that she was showing a, a lack of wifely submission to say no to being paraded before a bunch of drunken Persians, I think he's crazy. Now verse 12, we read, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. So, so Queen Vashti has, has some sort of level of self-respect and, and so she takes her stand and then the subsequent plight of what happens to her, all these things, these things are not written for us just to, just to have some sort of a of, of husband-wife conflict at the beginning. What is the author trying to do? He's not giving us an intriguing battle of the sexes or even giving us a commentary on ancient marriages. Instead, this whole incident is being used by the author of Esther to set up what's coming later. The author wants us to see what the Jews are going to be up against. This man, this king, is a godless tyrant. He has a short fuse and, as history has shown, was a dictator who didn't like it when he didn't get his way. This is a powerful man that little Esther will have to go before. This is a madman that timid Esther will have to influence. Chapter 1 of Esther serves the purpose of showing us how high the odds are stacked against Esther and her people. This whole incident between Vashti and Xerxes suggests that by all human reasoning, Esther should end up like her predecessor. If she in any way crosses the king, she's done for. We'll eventually be presented with the question in this book, how can a lowly Jewish girl even hope to influence the most powerful man in the world? How? But the refusal of Queen Vashti also shows us something else. Namely, that the emperor has no clothes. He is not nearly as powerful as he thinks he is. He is the mightiest man in the known world, a man who can do anything, yet he cannot even control his own wife. He cannot get his wife to come when he asks. He's powerless to change the human heart. As powerful as he thinks he is, he's really not all that powerful. And he is powerless to see and much less prevent the one true God from working in him and through him to bring about the deliverance of the Jewish people and the punishment of God's enemies. God's providence supersedes Xerxes' power as it does the power of all kings and all rulers. A hundred years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar said these things in verse 35 of Daniel chapter uh, 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the host of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And that should bring us great comfort. There is no king. There is no ruler. There is no president. There is no congress. There is no authority that can thwart God's plans. Period. So as we travel through this great story, this book of Esther, we will see God's providence superseding man's power. But we also see in this book 
that God's providence superintends man's plans. It supersedes man's power and it superintends, meaning that it oversees and guides and even overrules man's plans. So imagine the scene. Vashti has said, no way. I'm not going out there. These poor eunuchs, seven of them, have to go back and tell the king. I'm guessing they probably drew straws to figure out whose job that was going to be. You or me, I don't know. Let's, let's figure out who's going to go tell this. So one of them, one of these unlucky eunuchs has to go up to the king and, and uh, king says, okay, where's the queen? And he has to whisper in the king's ear, um, she's, she's not coming. She clears his throat, <clears throat> gives him the bad news. And in verse 12 we read, at this the king became enraged. He's not just a little bit upset. He's enraged and his anger burned within him. This is a huge embarrassment to this prideful man who was trying to display his own glory and his own power. And so something had to be done. He had to put a plan in place. He has to fix this. So he comes up with a plan. Verse 13. He calls for all of his wise men, which meant that they were astrologers. And so all these different guys come to him. They says that they are the seven princes of Persia and Media and they, who had seen the king's face. In other words, they had seen his anger and his embarrassment. In verse 15, according to the law... He asked them what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Now this isn't about marriage counseling for King Xerxes right now. This is about politics. So he goes to the law to find out how he can legally deal with Vashti. Now one of his advisors speaks up, but he does so for quite self-serving and manipulative purposes, which is a foreshadowing. What we have here is a foreshadowing of what what Haman is going to do later in the story. Memucan. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So apparently Memucan has some fears that his own wife might take a hint from Vashti. And so he elevates this seemingly small incident into a national scandal. And here we see the first ironic and quite humorous twist in the story. Look at at his concern in verse 17. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. So he's worried that that people are going to find out about this. All the women are going to find out about this. So Mamikin says he has this concern that this will become known in the kingdom and the, the women will begin to behave wrong. The women who's, who uh, will begin to, to object to being used as objects by their husbands. So how does he intend to keep this from, from growing to such a massive scandal? From, from being so known? By announcing and proclaiming a new law that pretty much exposes everything. Which in essence does the exact opposite of what he's worried about. He makes it known to everybody. Verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before the king Ashwaris. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Not exactly great political advice. He's no Karl Rove, okay? We can't let women hear about this and, and disobey their husbands. So, so let's announce to the whole, the whole affair and, and banish the queen 
and then our wives will really love us and honor us. It's a great plan. Drunk men don't make good policy decisions. So in their drunken, testosterone-driven stupidity, in the midst of all that, God is at work. He had more than a husband-wife squabble in mind. He uses the bullheaded self-worth of a pagan queen. He uses the prideful capriciousness of a mad king. He uses the foolish political advice of a self-serving so-called wise man to work things together for the good of his covenant people. But know that the king and Memucan and the queen, they're not mere puppets. They are making willful, volitional, morally accountable actions out of their own free agency. They are doing what they please. And we read that in verse 21. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Now that's kind of confusing there. What does that mean there at the end? Well, remember this kingdom is huge. It's actually encompassed many, many different people groups. And matter of fact, whenever these inscriptions are found in ancient Persia, we find these manuscripts, usually they're in more than one language, usually three languages, because there are many languages spoken in the kingdom. And what would happen sometimes is there would be families where the father would speak one language and the children would speak another language. And matter of fact, we see that phenomenon in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through 24. And so this law was calling for men to, to demonstrate their power and exercise their power and their mastery over their home by forcing the family to only speak their language. Be the boss. So the king's plans are put into action, only he doesn't know that his plans are actually in the hands of a greater king. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 16.9, many of you are familiar with this verse. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And we'll see this over and over again in this book. Man's plans overruled and overseen, subdued and superintended by the quiet providence of God. The next brilliant plan given to the king after he regrets his decision, which we'll see next week, is to hold a perverted Miss Persia contest to choose a new queen. That too was ultimately God's doing. And so we see God's providence superseding man's power, superintending man's plans, Thirdly, God's providence safeguards God's people. This is the main purpose of the book. Yes, this book was intended to teach Jews where the Feast of Purim had um, come from, which we see in chapter 9. But the overarching purpose of that feast was to celebrate the larger message of this book. Namely, that God providentially fulfills his covenant promises to his covenant people. That's the main message. God providentially fulfills his covenant promises to his covenant people. Now we need to step back just a second here and note a few things regarding when this is happening in redemptive history. The events of the story are taking place after Cyrus's decree 50 years earlier allowing the Jews to return to Judah and rebuild the temple. Remember I said that Xerxes father was Darius and his grandfather was Cyrus. Well, Cyrus was the one 50 years prior who had put out a decree allowing the Jews to return to 
the homeland, return to Judah, rebuild the temple. But even after that decree, which was a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecies and Isaiah's prophecies, there were still many Jews who were comfortable and content in pagan Persia, and therefore most of them stayed. And though we can't say with certainty, there were probably, I think we we can probably come to the conclusion that most of them were disobedient in doing so. Now there's another return of the exiles later, after these events here in Esther. So in redemptive history, if you want to figure out where this fits in your Bible in history, if you look at the book of Ezra, the events of Esther take place between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. That's where Esther takes place. Okay? So Mordecai and Esther were part of those who didn't go back. Regardless of their motive, they were part of those who remained in the pagan culture of Persia. Matter of fact, one commentator, and I found this intriguing, believes that one of the reasons, not the primary reason, but one of the reasons why God, the name of God and the worship of God is not seen in Esther, is that God is not seen very much in the everyday lives of the Jews who were still living in Persia. He just doesn't show up much there. So he doesn't show up much in the story. But God, regardless of the faithfulness or faithlessness of his people, he is a faithful God. God is a covenant-keeping God who restores the fortunes of rebellious sinners. And the main theological theme of this book is simply the fact that God providentially takes care of his people. Why? Because it is through the Jewish people that the main hero of the main story is yet to come. God is protecting his people. He's protecting the lineage of the Messiah. All throughout redemptive history, the ancient serpent is trying to destroy the lineage. He has Abel murdered. He has Jewish boys thrown into the Nile. He has another madman named Herod kill all the toddlers of Bethlehem. But God providentially protects the lineage so that God himself in the person of the Son can become the keeper of our end of the covenant too. For it is the offspring singular of Abraham, Jesus, for whom, through whom, and to whom all the covenant promises are made and kept. He is yet to come onto the scene. So God causes a mad king to get rid of his wife and hold a beauty pageant to protect that lineage. So think about this with me for a second. The faithful Jew, Jewish remnant were back in Judah and are working away at the temple, rebuilding it and worshiping God. And unbeknownst to them, nearly a thousand miles away, their very existence is being played out in a banquet hall in a Persian palace. And they have no idea. They have no idea that God is providentially at work elevating a young Jewish girl to a position of power to protect them. Such is the hidden providence of God. Such is the hidden providence of God in our lives as well. How many ways is God at work around this globe? Ways we have no idea. And many of those things connected directly to us that God is at work orchestrating, making things happen for the purpose of his people. Just like he was for those unsuspecting Jews chipping away at blocks and building a temple in Judah while all this drama was happening in Persia. So what are we to take from the book of Esther? Should we start observing the Feast of Purim? No. 
But we should recognize a few things that the book of Esther teaches us, things that that festival are meant to remember. Number one, we must see that providence and human responsibility are not opposites. God is more than capable as God to oversee and use the volitional actions and free, of free creatures to work, about, work his unbreakable plans. Esther shows us that quite clearly. We see kings making willful, volitional decisions. But God in sovereign control. Number two, we, we must see and Savior God's quiet providence. That's what this book is for. Friends, Esther teaches us that, that God is at work everywhere, all the time, in every way. We cannot live like, like materialists who see everything as a cosmic accident, nor can we live like deists who see God as an absent landlord. Everything, everything is guided by God's quiet providence. Every chance encounter, every silly coincidence, every insignificant event. So why? Why as believers, why as those who belong to God, do we fret over anything that comes into our lives or any circumstance that engulfs us? Why? Our God is at work in a billion tiny details. Don't live in fear of selfish, godless politicians of our day. Don't spend your days fretting over ISIS. We, like Esther, are exiles in this world, citizens of God's kingdom, and we are just passing through. Number three, we must see and savor God's quiet providence, but we must rejoice in the fact that it's not just that God is at work, but that he is at work for us. It's not just that he's orchestrating everything. He's actually doing it with a specific purpose for us. The God of the universe is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? He's specifically for those who belong to him, his covenant people. You see, if you put your faith in the Messiah, you've put your faith in that offspring that we spoke of earlier, Jesus, then you have been united to him so that his identity is your identity. He is the obedient son, the faithful Jew. He has, he has secured all of God's covenant promises for you, and you have been by faith grafted into the covenantal people of God. And so the God who's unstoppable, quiet, providence worked for Esther and for Mordecai and for the Jews in Susa and for those unquestioning Jews in Jerusalem, that God is working for you too. If you are a child of God who has repented of his sins and put his faith in Christ. That's what Romans 8, 28 teaches us, isn't it? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I invite you, I ask you, I beg you to bow the knee to the God who rules this universe with a quiet providence. Turn to the Christ, the offspring that was being protected in this very story. Turn to the one who is the true hero, even of the book of Esther. His life, his death, his resurrection is the pivot, the dramatic twist in our story. When all seemed lost, he didn't just risk his life like Esther. He gave his life. He gave it to rescue and to redeem his covenant people by taking their sin upon himself at the cross. He gave his life so that we, previously covenant breakers God ignores, could become his people. And he destroyed an enemy 
much more vicious and cunning and conniving than Haman. So that now all who call upon his name are saved and have everlasting joy. So come, put your faith in Jesus. God's quiet providence. You can't explain it, but it's, it's here. It's working. It's happening this very moment at this, this time, this morning. God's at work. So don't treat God like your microwave oven. See and savor the glorious, hidden, quiet providence of a God who's working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Believer, let his providence stir you up to a zealous worship so that you can say with the Apostle Paul, Romans eleven thirty three, oh the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. An unbeliever, let his providence stir you to repentance. Hearing the Apostle Paul's words in an earlier part of Romans, Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So unbeliever, repent. Believer, worship. Worship at the feet of a God who's at work through quiet providence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you for this amazing story. Lord, the genius of this book is that you can't, you can't walk away from it and not see you, even though you're never mentioned. Father, I thank you that in my life, especially in the last week, I have seen little quiet providences, little things that, that many would say, ah, that's just a silly coincidence, that was just chance. Father, as a believer, we cannot say that. Father, keep us from speaking like heathens, pagans. No, no little coincidence that draws things together in our lives is mere chance. Help us, Father, to see your quiet hand at work. Lord, I pray that you would give all the believers in here in this room this morning eyes to see your quiet providence this week. Help us to see the, the person that comes into our life this week and, and, and to see what conversation it is that, that we are to have with that person because you have providentially crossed our paths. Help us to see that, that, that Bible verse that just, just so happened to speak exactly about what, what someone else was talking about earlier today and, and how, how that's not just a coincidence. You are doing stuff like that. And it's not silly. It actually glorifies you because it demonstrates that you are at work in, in an infinitely more detailed and greater way than our silly little self-absorbed minds can understand. So God, help us to see. Give me eyes to see. Give all of us eyes to see. And Lord, there be any in here who have walked through this life like King Ahasuerus, thinking that they're all that. 
It's all about them. They're going to make their own luck. Oh, Father, I pray that you would break them. Break them of that pride and that arrogance and that idolatry of self and show them that the main character of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He's the main character of Esther. He's the main character of all the scriptures and everything was pointing to him and he came into this world to save foolish, wayward, straying sinners like us. Lord, stir their heart to repentance. They're not here by accident this morning. (laughs) If there's an unbeliever here this morning, they are not here by accident. Oh God, stir repentance in their heart. May they bow the knee to the one true King of Kings. So God, we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our hero. Amen.